Fantastic. Welcome back to Chasing Squirrels. On this cast, I'm going to be chatting with Sarah Vitelli. And part of, I'll say flat out, this past school year, I've joined a brand new school. So I've kind of come out of the little school. And I don't mean that in a almost insulting, well, as insulting as it sounds. But <laughs> I, yeah, um, I've, I've spent a long time in fringe programs that kind of are away from the big school. And one of the cool things about getting into a high school of this size is I get to see more new people every day. And again, you know, peeps that I worked with in the past, I'm not throwing any shades your way. Like somehow I didn't enjoy seeing you each day. But there's a really different feel to getting into the motion and the energy and the action of a big school because you just, it's like watching a parade that you, you just don't have a clear thing for your eyes to fall on. There's so many things to pay attention to. I'm still getting used to it. Uh, I have a lot of things that fall by the wayside, you know, emails that are just constantly flowing into my inbox from multiple points of entry. And I've definitely met some, some fascinating people this year that have um, allowed me to have, you know, more conversations about stuff that's going on in education, cool stuff that's going on in my school board, and just the stuff that fascinates me. So, without any further ado, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, here's the, here's the high-pressure question to get the ball rolling, right? Uh, you get to introduce yourself, so I'm going to toss the mic to you. Perfect. Uh, yeah, so this is a hard question now. <laughs> uh, so, I'm Sarah. Um, my intro, let me do this intro based on what you just said. Okay. So this has been the school that I've been at longest. So I'm a teacher um, at, again, a large board, North of Toronto. Yeah. Um, and as a young-ish teacher, I don't want to call myself a young teacher, um, but as a young-ish teacher, I started my career doing LTOs and bouncing around a little bit. And so now I'm at a school finally where I've settled. And so um, I guess for me in my practice, and who I am and what I'm thinking about. It's how do I keep things fresh um, when you do start to feel comfortable at a school because I've never felt that before. Um, because that freshness and that newness has just come from learning about different places and learning about different people and meeting different people and getting exposed to different students. Um, so right now, a lot of what I'm doing is kind of looking at what I can change in my practice. What can I change in my department? What can I change in who I am and my identity as a teacher to try to keep what I'm doing fresh and new and innovative um, in the classroom and in the school and keep, I guess, that passion that people have for the first few years of their career alive. Okay, so I'm gonna go off. You've already pushed me <laughs> off the beaten path. Yes. From, yeah, no, no, that was good. Uh, so you've, you've Okay, so you're fairly new-ish, new-ish, number of years. I noticed you didn't mention the number of years teaching. <laughs> but here's your, <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by, and I think, okay, so I'm old-ish. <laughs> so didn't take offense to you sort of mentioning the new-ish kind of thing. So I'm old-ish. Uh, I've been teaching since 2005. Cool. I did not hit a space in my teaching within the first five to seven years where I thought, I need to kind of mix this up a bit. So I'm kind of 
Yeah. You're kind of messing with my mind here a little bit. So what is the, what's your experience that's, what's your current experience that's kind of like fueling that idea that you're already, you're already in motion to kind yeah. of retool and fix? What's, what are the pressure points there that are kind of... So, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, good point. Um, so the reason that I don't say young or new, okay. just like for full disclosure, is because I think a lot of people have this concept of a young teacher is always phrased with a negative connotation, Okay. right? So young teacher either means, oh, you're a young teacher, like you'll figure it out eventually. Oh, you're a young teacher, you'll stop trying so hard eventually. There's always this kind of, or at least in some of the experiences that I've had, it gets phrased in a, like, know your place, learn more, gain more experience. And so I actually think a lot of where, like, my need for change, and I just don't like to feel stagnant at all um, in any aspect of my life, but I think that that need for change comes from kind of a need to, at least early in my career, prove myself. Mm. Um, And so... Like taking those experiences and then going into a school where now I think I was put into an environment where as a school we were building and we were changing, it gave me the opportunity to be able to seek newness and seek experimentation and take risks in a place that felt safe. And so it doesn't, I don't think that like it comes from a need of, oh, I'm bored with what I'm doing because I'm not, I love what I'm doing and like every single day feels new and that's the best part of teaching for me but it's why not try to push yourself to do something new like why feel like for the first two years three years five years seven years now why feel like everything that I'm doing works right and so I think a lot of what I try to do and some of the stuff that I try to do pedagogically and with my focus on assessment and with my focus on like even exploring my own identity as a teacher and the authenticity that I try to bring to my classroom, that reflection is looking back at what I've done and thinking about what hasn't worked for my students and what can I do to better serve them. And I think a lot of even how I look at teaching English specifically comes from that mindset because English in a lot of ways hasn't changed that drastically from even when I was in high school. And I think it should. And so I've spent a lot of time even reflecting on what do we do as an English teacher in the classroom? And why do we do it that way? And what's our goal? And what's our intent as a teacher? Like what's every lesson intended to provoke in my students? And the only way that I can reflect on that is by changing what I'm doing. So I don't think it's, excuse me, I don't think it's changed from a like, I'm bored and stagnant perspective. I think it's changed from a how do I do better perspective. I want to keep learning perspective. And I want to I want to do more differently and be at the forefront of those changes. And I mean whether that's in education or like in other aspects of my life. I think even growing up there's always just been an aspect of like who I am and my personality and I come from a sports background and I think that that informs that in a lot of ways like the competitive nature of sport um but yeah it's funny like people think new teacher you're gonna there's this kind of stereotype of your first five years of your career you're just drowning in work I never felt that I always felt excited and so now it's how do I keep maintaining that excitement and building that 
as I start to feel comfortable in a career because I'm starting to get a handle on all the little nuances of teaching that you don't really get prepared for until you're physically in a classroom. So now that I feel more comfortable, great, what can I change and improve and do differently day to day and year to year in the same classes just to be better for those kids? Especially because the kids are different year to year, right? And I think that that's one of the pieces that we need to think about when we're thinking about teaching and like when we're thinking about being innovative and trying to transition our classrooms from being teacher-centered to being student-centered, it's what can we change about our own practice? So, and well, and you might even be able to speak to that just given the clientele that you work with, like your students in comparison to my students and how we can look at those differences. Yeah, um, and you know, when I say I've been teaching in small spaces, some of those small spaces, someone like you and someone like me would have overlap in those kids. It's just where the kids, it's the silo that the kids are put into for a little while, sometimes to return to class, sometimes not. So full disclosure, <laughs> yeah. one of my previous uh, teaching gigs is I worked with students that are on suspension and expulsion. So, uh, and then a lifetime in special education and guidance and student success. So part of that, I get the, I completely get the, whether it's retooling, reimagining, or just being present with your practice so that you're, you can sort of make better mm -hmm. decisions about how you make the next step, yeah. present in your practice with whoever's sitting in front of you, and present in your practice so that you, because I think if you, if you can sort of get out of motion for a second, you're more aware of the things that are coming at you or coming around you. Mm -hmm. So that whole idea in the first year, let's say first few years of a teacher, I know that there's, there's the sense of pressure. Mm -hmm. There's performance pressure, there's success pressure, there's social pressure, there's just life pressure. This might be the first full-time job, real full-time adult yep. kind of job that uh, a new teacher would have. Uh, but definitely my sense of retooling I had prior to coming to teaching. So my measurement was always on a three to five year, like I gotta, I gotta break everything and put it back together. Um, I've slowed down on the break everything since I've been married because I will tell you, well, no, I will tell you because yeah. prior to that, it was also reassessment of relationships and connections as well. As in, is it still fueling something in me? Is, am I still bringing the best possible posse with me to the next adventure? Yeah. But yeah, marriage and kids is kind of... <laughs> Slows down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've sort of, I've stopped, um, I'm, I'm investing there as opposed yeah. to cashing in, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I like how you mentioned the safety. I love how you mentioned English. You have memories of high school English. Yeah. Um, I've often talked about sometimes standing in classrooms and having flashbacks to 1985 because the classroom that I'm in reminds me so much of a classroom that I was sitting mm -hmm. in. I'm gonna push you sort of back into that time frame, and I'm curious about like some early school memories, some of the stuff that could mm -hmm. be formative to the person that's sitting here in front of me. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you, there was no teacher in my future when I was back in 1985, oh, okay. no. So I, I'm curious about that kind of stuff. Like when you okay. look back, yeah. can you see set pieces or moments that were slowly kind of bringing you to this moment? Yeah, I, uh, throughout elementary school, okay, so I was a very compliant kid. I was like the good student who did all of their work and felt guilty when they didn't do it and like wanted to achieve and wanted to have good grades. And 
I mean, I've said it before, like if I knew then what I know now about what I could have gotten away with, I certainly would have gotten away with a lot more. Um, but for me, school was a very safe place. It was a place where I felt very valued. And so teachers made me feel that way. Um, and I think even though initially I didn't want to be a teacher, like I went through all the usual things of, I want to be an astronaut and I wanted to be an archeologist because I watch Jurassic Park. Like I want to be a race car driver. Like I had all of those experiences. Um, but then once I hit high school, teaching just made sense to me. Um, and so for me though, it, it was the safety piece. It was the fact that teachers built relationships with me that I really valued and I really respected. And they exposed me to viewpoints that I didn't get exposed to in other places. Um, and there was a sense of empathy that I got from my teachers that as a kid I really needed. Um, like there was some family illness when I was young that my dad uh, was sick and so teachers helped me through that experience. Uh -huh. um, kind of a short one year span when I was like 12, 13 years old maybe, um, where people were sick and several family members died and it was teachers who were there to talk to. Um, and even little things like teachers would recommend a book for me to read on my own time and then spend time talking to me about it. So there was always a lot of value that I got out of school for me emotionally. Uh, and then once I made it to high school, the same thing kind of happened. It was a place where I could explore the things that I was passionate about. Um, I could get involved. I played sports. And again, it was teachers who built relationships with me that I needed um, and again like I was a compliant kid I was a good student but on top of that outside of the classroom school gave me a place to belong and that was what I valued um, and then like in terms of becoming a teacher I coached when I was younger um, I was always a big basketball player my sister was playing basketball and I happened to go and watch her play one of her teachers owned a basketball league and he invited me in as a coach when I was in high school. So that was kind of my high school part-time job, weekends, summers, doing camps. Um, and the moment from that that stands out to me was this one girl that I was coaching, she must have been like, she was little, she was like four or five years old, very, very young. Um, and it was a kindergarten aged program that I was running at the time. And I can remember her trying to shoot this basketball and she just couldn't, right? And we tried for hours and hours and hours. And I had her for, I think it was four weeks. It was a month every summer. Um, so for four weeks with this girl and she just couldn't shoot this basketball. And I noticed as I was getting her set up to shoot that we kept putting a ball in her right hand with her right foot forwards. But when we would hand her the ball naturally, she'd set up the opposite way. Mm. And there was this moment where it hit me that I was like, why don't you try shooting with your left hand and we'll see what happens. And she scored and she broke down crying and her dad broke down crying. Mm. And I can remember that moment. And I don't think then I knew the impact it had on me, but I remember like years later when I started teaching, thinking back to that moment and realizing how much more teaching means than just the content that you're delivering. And so um, when I wound up deciding to go to teacher's college, it just felt natural to me in the subjects that I chose as well, like 
so I'm English and phys ed qualified, those subjects were the two where I had the strongest connections with my teachers. So it wasn't necessarily a choice of um, content that I'm most comfortable or passionate about. It was where do I experience the most compassion? And where do I feel the most connected and valued and supported? Um, and so getting into teaching, I don't think was ever a conscious choice. It was just a natural progression of school being a place that mattered for me and me wanting school to continue to be a part of my life. And I hope that I can have that same impact, that it can be a place that matters for someone. Um, because I think that, like, I don't know what else I would have done if I hadn't gone into teaching. And that's not to say that, like, I would spend my entire career teaching in a classroom, but I really don't know what else I'd be doing. Like it's, I'd never look back. <laughs> so it's always made sense. It's always been like the thing that fit. Which is interesting too, because right now, I think what I'm dealing with is a struggle in how do we stay authentic as teachers? And how do we, in a job that's very human, and yet feels very policed in a lot of ways, and censored in a lot of ways, how do we present our authentic selves? And how do we create those human connections that I know mattered so much to me in an environment where we feel we have to be so cautious and censor what we do so constantly? And I think that's one of the pieces now that I'm grappling with non-pedagogically um, and maybe pedagogically because all of the CRRP, like the culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy work that we're doing, I think ties into that as well. How do we make these buildings safe spaces to build community? Because that's what school was for me. It was community. Um, and it mattered as a community. And so how can we create those spaces for our kids now? Right. I had... Uh... <laughs> It was just today, it was a student that I haven't seen for a while. So a student that I'm monitoring, supporting, mentoring. Saw them in the hallway. And I'm one that's kind of a, like, I don't mind just, like, screaming and cheering. Um, often the kid doesn't respond. They're like, yo, Clef, like, <laughs> Do they back mind? down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back down a little bit. Your joy is just, it's 8 a.m. in the morning. Like, come on, Clef. Yeah. Um, and I will say, in that moment, I was so happy. The kid reciprocated, was happy to be here. Yeah. And flat out, I threw a hug on him. And then right away, I'm like, okay, yeah, good to see you. And he's like, yeah, good to see you. I'm like, good to see you. But I get that moment of wanting, wanting to have the respectful, the connected relationships. And the type of relationship that you're mm -hmm. clearly has, like it's... It, it planted a seed and it sort of has completely grown something in you. Like that's, you, you think about yourself as the teacher right now, like that's what you're hoping for your kids, that you're, yeah. you're sort of like going to a place with them or sharing a moment with them that 10 years down the road, they look back and say, hey, it's your fault this good thing happened. Mm -hmm. So I love that moment. Yeah. Now, you know, it, the, the hug in the hallway is kind of like, it was, it was, it became awkward and I'm like, okay, sorry. He's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, yeah, sorry. Like, he's just, I was kind of happy because I was happy you were here. Yeah. I'm great to see you back in school. 
But I think that those are some of those moments that when they fall under scrutiny, they can become, yeah. it can become like, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe that's, that's, we can't sort of, we can't broad base that because not everyone is comfortable going there. Um, but you make me, you also made me wonder how much of your past are you stealing right now to be, to be the teacher you are right now? So are you, are you, are you the teacher? Are you, are you the teacher that you were as a student or are you something entirely <laughs> different? I the teacher I was as a student. Yeah, I think, I think, okay. um, wait, how did I write it? I wrote it and I thought, that's a really clever way to write that. And I'm, I'm not going to come, oh, uh, teacher is as student was. Hmm. <laughs> compliant? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? And you, li- you live with that compliant. Yeah. But do you, and part of that is, I look at, I look at so much of what composes a teacher right now. I entirely, I, I, I build full list of superpowers. I do. I really, I don't, I don't. I kind of go by what's entirely being presented, yeah. where it came from. That's sometimes an interesting story, as yeah. is yours. Like that's interesting, yeah. but how it manifests and how it's used now is, I, I like to believe that there's a utility to it in the least. Yeah. Um, I have met some teachers that have admitted, like, yeah, I just like I was like this as a student. I was like this as a as a young adult, and now I'm teaching like this, and they want to break free of it. Yeah. They, they want to become something else. But I am curious whether or not yeah. is, has, is there still bits of you as that teenager yeah. that you're tapping into as the teacher now? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I think maybe in the last year or two years, I've transitioned out of that need for like rightness. Mm. So I think as a kid, school for me was easy. There was a right answer and I could write it down and like call it a day and move on and mm-hmm. it was fine. And then academics for me always kind of positioned themselves that way in my life it was something that I have to do to get to this end point Mm. the relationships really really matter to me but like what I'm doing in the classroom didn't (laughs) right it was a means to an end because I knew where I wanted to end up and I think like especially because of English being the area that I went into I mean what part of my English degree prepared me to teach someone how to read None of it. Mm -hmm. It prepared me to analyze literature really, really well, and that's great, but I don't teach them how to analyze non-fiction or fiction from the 1800s. I teach them how to read and how to access content, how to decode a text. Mm -hmm. Those are two very different skill sets. So for me, it was always a means to an end. Um, Now, I think what I've learned just through even life experience is that there isn't a right answer. Right? Like there isn't going to be a right way to do things. And I think that we're in education, I think that we're like grossly overcomplicating a lot of what we do and taking the human aspect out of it. And so what I hope is that as a teacher, I'm keeping the human aspect that I sought and hopefully provided as a student, but leaving some of the A-type kind of right answer behind because I'd rather take some risks and try some new things and fail at a few of them and that's okay it might not work and work with people to build a system that's more manageable for teachers to flourish in but also more transferable for students to understand and apply and see its relevance so I think that those are two very distinct things that 
the system I existed in didn't necessarily do that for me. So as a student, yeah, I was compliant and yeah, I, I was hardworking and I think I bring that passion that I had as a student with me into what I do in my classroom, but the purpose and my intent has changed. My intent now isn't to find the right answer. My intent is to find a way of doing things that works for the individual in front of me. And that's gonna be drastically different from the next individual that I'm gonna conference with and drastically different from the third one that I'm gonna to talk to. And so it's instead of finding the right way, it's finding a series of ways, a se like a toolbox that I can access depending on who the kid is, but then give them that same toolbox. It's not about giving them a right answer, it's about giving them the tools that they're gonna to need to find the answers on their own in whatever way works for them, in whatever field works for them, in whatever pathway they decide to, to choose and to go down but while maintaining that humanity. Do you, so if you're sort of mining your memory, was that your sense of how your teachers were helping you? Or was there a different feel to it? Did you have a sense like they were sort of, because I like what you're saying, it's yeah. always, and, I, and part of, this is kind of one moment I want to try to bring back, maybe a little less abstract. Yeah. It's, it's the funny thing to stand in front of a group of 14, 15 year olds and realize for a whole period you've been speaking a different language. Yeah. Yet <laughs> you as the adult in the room like, that felt awesome. Like yeah. you felt like you felt some of, some of the emotionality, some of the flow, some of the connection. But then that sort of like, the, to sort of be able to find out whether or not it was connecting in the way that you were projecting it. Yeah. Like is it actually being received as you're sending it? So mining, mining your memory, were you aware, was it as clear of an awareness of someone kind of s setting things up for you so that you could sort of move through these spaces mm -hmm. or was it something else? Was it, was it more, was it more the tone of it? Was more just the emotionality of it? Was it the, you know, were you craving a specific kind of mentorship or coaching or just, you know what, yeah. you were on the, it was magic and you were feeling good. Like someone yeah. was just able to make you feel good about being at school. I think I knew later. Yeah. I figured it out later. Okay. And so, yeah, and whether that was uh, just that self-awareness that developed later yeah, and yeah. that I was able to reflect. Um, but it's fun, like, it's funny because, and maybe I'm sure we all hear these conversations, right? There's always going to be the teacher who I remember as a student, I would defend to my peers, mm -hmm. right? So my peers had whatever problem with whatever mark they got and they decided to take it out on the teacher and I would defend those teachers. So I think I was cognizant of the fact that my relationships with teachers mattered to me. Right. But I don't think I understood that other people may not have been having the yeah. same experiences. Right. And I mean, who knows why, right? Was the difference in me as a student, was the difference in my actions in the classroom, was the difference in the teacher's actions. Like, where did that difference come from? Or maybe there's a teacher who I didn't relate to, but somebody else did, right? And so like that mentorship that I sought after, the specific people who provided it to me, I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware of why. And I think, like looking back now, I can see some of the actions that they went through that provided that emotional piece that I did feel then, but didn't understand. Okay, here's my last yeah. sort of sidebar on this. Well, you keep, you keep going on what you want, but here's, uh, so the whole, <laughs> the whole chasing squirrels like thing, um, 
I haven't told the story in a while, but I'll, I'll share bits and I'm, I'll let you sort of like tap into it. Um, I've, so the story actually has to do with my dog. Okay. So back in the day when we, my, uh, I guess at the time, my fiance at the time we adopted a dog, we thought it was a good idea. We went to the shelters, we went to um, a bunch of different places. We weren't about to go to PetSmart. We knew that, you know, there's lots of homeless dogs out there that were looking for homes, right? They're forever home. So we ended up going to a vet clinic because there had a, a dog that had been found in the neighborhood and been living there for a while. We had sort of like, we were sort of led on a scavenger hunt. Oh, go talk to this, this, this. And we ended up at this vet clinic. So it was a bunch of references in this dog. So we, ended, we, we, adopt, we adopted the dog. Now, the getting to know the stage of the dog was, was pretty cool. The dog was like, it was in Toronto, would sit at TTC streetcar stops hmm. and wait. So there's story being revealed that you're like, someone else has spent time with this dog on the streetcar. So there are a bunch of different things. Now, one of the things that came out about this dog, there were a bunch of things that we figured out later was that this dog was fascinated with squirrels. Like just, <laughs> and we never really got to any of its genealogy to figure out like its heritage, like whether or not, okay. like there's dogs that that's, it's in their, their blood, right? Their DNA yeah. to go after oh, yeah. vermin, basically. <laughs> so uh, one day, uh, my my fiance, she's bringing the dog out and she comes out, the dog's on one of those um, elastic cords. So mm -hmm. it kind of locks, but it can go out to like 16 feet. So she didn't happen to have it locked at the time, right? And the dog's name uh, was Darcy and Darcy noticed a squirrel. And you know, if you've spent any time around watching squirrels, when you approach them, they tend to go counterclockwise around the tree. Okay. So, and they kind of get higher and higher and higher. So, uh, and then they'll kind of like chirp at you at a distance and then you kind of go on. Well, for whatever reason, Darcy shifted left, which made the squirrel go up and around right. And then she backed up right away and came around the right, jumped up and grabbed the squirrel off the tree. Ooh. Now, there were no squirrels harmed in the story. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can see it, yeah. This is I gonna see, become a yeah, different podcast. No, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't get, there's no carnage. But, but and by this point, I can hear, I can hear her, she's sort of screaming and sort of like, as the story goes, um, Darcy basically, so two things I can imagine having. So this is where I kind of take a life, I take a story that becomes a life lesson. My dog was fairly pacifistic. Like she just, she would do these things, but really um, she didn't know what to do with the squirrel. So as it was described to me, was that she was kind of bouncing her nose off the squirrel. Like not really, like not hurting it, not biting yeah. it, just like trying to kind of like, I want to smell you, I want to smell you, I want to smell you. And the squirrel I can imagine just doing nose boxing and like screeching and screeching and screeching. So at some point, Darcy responds to my spouse and uh, heals, comes back. She sort of tethers in the elastic cord. The squirrel goes up and of course from the tree is like now swearing and squirrel down at the dog. Like, <laughs> and, it, and they go on their separate ways. And for some reason, I mean, it kind of sticks with, I, I do the teacher brain or the overthinker brain and it makes me think about the, uh, the moments. Now this story sort of like, kind of fermented in my brain for a long time. Okay. I didn't all of a sudden like, now I gotta make a podcast. It wasn't like that. It kind of, it, the full disclosure was like, what am I gonna call this podcast? I'm like, oh, that's a clever turn of phrase, chasing squirrels. I'm like, oh, I remember when Darcy caught the squirrel. So the original intent with the podcast was to sort of examine how we deal with change in school. And cool. especially when, um, whether we're driving at change mm -hmm. or change grabs us. Mm -hmm. And that story about the squirrel comes to mind because neither the squirrel nor the dog knew what to do in that moment, but <laughs> yeah. something was happening, right? Yeah. And in this case, the squirrel got away. Darcy had her moment, you know, whatever squirrel sense she enjoyed on her face. And um, the day went on. Your, where I bring this to us now is that 
the idea that, um, and it's, it's maybe to make what we were talking about the authentic mm -hmm. in the classroom, I think that was a day of reckoning for Darcy, sort of figuring out that she could do a thing and couldn't do a thing. But I will tell you after that, she was a lot more attentive to maple trees. Mm -hmm. Like she was like every time, Learning. like <laughs> she was looking up. She's like, cause that's where the squirrels are. They're not just on the ground. They are actually up. Yeah. And I have no doubt she, you know, kind of reinforced some little like skill set. Yeah. They go left, we go right kind of a thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not, so you've, you've addressed that you're, you're driving a change in the classroom yourself. Yeah. Did you have some sort of a, there's a really long lead in by the way, I'll say it right now, it's a long Great, lead in. Yes. Um, but did you have a moment of reckoning where you realized that you had to change? Like there was something that kind of said, I can't, mm. I can't do the things as I've done so far. Um, I can feel it sort of maybe just kind of like drifting away from me. I need to kind of mm -hmm. go in a different direction to kind of get back to, it's almost like I have to leave where I am to find the authentic. Mm -hmm. I have to leave where I'm centered, decenter myself to get to that new space. Mm -hmm. Does anything come to mind, a moment in, oh, yeah. in class or a moment of activity where you're like, yeah, this was kind of the point where like, I have to go in a different direction. Yeah, well, it, I think uh, talking to parents did mm. that. <laughs> so like when I started my career, I started teaching phys ed and then bounced around from a couple of LTOs and wound up teaching English. Um, and at the time, the goal was always no, I, I want to teach phys ed. I know I'm going to have to like pay my dues and it's going to take time to get there, but I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. And then I started to teach English and I was teaching um, at a school with a relatively traditional English program, right? It was very text-based. We did a Shakespeare unit. There was a poetry unit. It was driven by texts and not necessarily skills. Um, and it was in a department that was starting to change, but as I think a lot of you know English departments and English teaching is, there was contrast. Like half of the department was looking for change and half of the department was looking for the traditional and saying, well, if we've always done it this way, then what's so wrong with it? Um, and why can't we keep this? And when I was there, there was a conversation that I had with a parent who had come in with a complaint and they were looking at some assessment that we'd done in the class and their question was, well, how was this taught? And it was a written piece that kids had done uh, based on a text. Mm. And yeah, they were right. The teaching in class was about the text. The teaching in class was not about writing. So how could we assess their writing? And how could we as teachers like walk into our office and complain, oh, these kids can't write? And we didn't teach them how to. We taught them how to understand a text. And not even how to understand the text, but how to understand that text. So there was this moment where I kind of had to stop and in this conversation reflect on what had I done as a teacher to prepare my student for the assessment that then they didn't do well on. Yep. Right? What interventions did I actually have in place to support the skills that I wound up assessing? And the answer was not many. And so that moment for me triggered kind of a review of what's my curriculum asking me to teach as an English teacher? And how will I deliver that so that I'm making sure that kids are developing skill sets, not knowledge of text content? Because like really, in the grand scheme of things, I don't care if they know Hamlet. I don't care if they know the text that they've decided to read. I care that they know how to access that text, that they can make some broad connections, and that they can find the things that are relevant to them to read and connect to their world, and that they've learned how to communicate effectively. 
um, in different ways, right? Like we can look at the English curriculum and I mean, I'm happy to share what I think it should look like, but um, that's the goal, right? That's the skill set. How do we deconstruct the text? How do we construct the text to make sure that we're critical and that we can be understood and communicate our thoughts? And so it was after that moment that I kind of went back and I started to think about how can I redesign my own courses? And then as a new contract, I went through the experience that a lot of people have, which is being topped up in areas that you're not qualified in. So I wound up teaching civics, um, which I do not have qualifications in, but it was one of the best things that happened to me because it forced me to really be cognizant of the curriculum and to go back to the curriculum instead of relying on my content knowledge. Um, because I'd done the same thing as I'm sure a lot of English teachers do. And I walked into a classroom, I was handed a course, and I said, okay, yeah, this is what I'll teach. Oh yeah, this looks a lot like what I learned in high school. Perfect, this must be right. And it wasn't, I don't think it was. Um, and so being forced into a content area that I had very little knowledge of made me reflect on the curriculum a lot more and learn how to apply curriculum a lot more critically. Um, which I could then bring with me back into an English classroom. And it's funny because that's what spurred my decision to want to stay in English. It became a lot more provocative to me because they are very challenging conversations that you need to have with people who see traditional English as being the right way. And I enjoy the fact that I don't think we really have a model yet, and I think that this is something that's changing, but I don't think we have a model yet of what a real interpretation of the English curriculum is. And I think a lot of people have started to think that way and have started to make these changes, but it's a really slow process because there's so much resistance to it. And that's exciting, and I really like that. Um, and so part for me of being here now is the opportunity to create some of that change and the opportunity to like work with other like-minded people who are all willing to try to build a program that moves beyond the traditional model of what English is that we know very few kids see relevance in because very few kids end up pursuing English degrees. So how can we make English as a subject area something that they still see relevance in and something that they can transfer to whatever they're doing in their other classes. So I think it was that moment where this parent questioned what I was doing and I said like, yeah, you're right. I need to go back and I need to reflect on my practice. And that really spurred in me a desire to create some change because I didn't like being in that position where I couldn't defend what I'd done. And what I'd done is just what has always been done. So if I can't defend it, probably not right <laughs> there's probably something wrong that I've done here I get your um, I get your personal challenge of looking at curriculum almost with like a set like having to separate curriculum from personal experience or even your degree that you've been trained mm -hmm. to do so university I took I took a lot of anthro mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of soch and ultimately ended up not using any of it. I took drama and French as well. Like I was liberal arts. I was, it was a salad. I was, every course was like, yeah, sure, I'll take. And like, oh wait, what do I need to graduate? Like you have to tighten yeah. it up a bit. So yeah. I finally graduate. But it's interesting when I, when I came to teaching, I had come out of industry as a chef, sort of working hospitality for the okay. longest time. 
but I had this undergraduate degree as well. So I had tech papers for cooking. Uh, so I was teaching tech, but they also said, oh, and by the way, you're gonna, we're gonna give you a section of the HSP course. So that anthropology Such is a, a good, good course. It's an amazing course. Yeah. Um, one of the things I made sure, the thing that, that helped me remain believing that it was amazing was the moments where I was able to make it sticky to other courses. Yeah. Because it was a standalone at the time. They were looking at, they, we didn't have any of the, the senior level um, family courses yet. Okay. HH, I forget all the coding, but there's two grade 12 courses. Yeah. We didn't have the grade 12 version even of that course. We only had the, that, they were test driving it. And it was an M course at the time. Right. So it was a lot of people in the pool right. jumping into that course. Right. And I was like, okay, I've had a lot of really interesting conversations and written papers on stuff like university, but I don't, I, uh, how does, what does, what does that get me in the classroom of a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds? Mm -hmm. So I was yeah. constantly kind of ferreting out, what are you doing in English class right now? What are you doing in geography? What are you doing in history? Is there mathematics here that I can sort of draw in? Because I thought the more that they're talking about my course and other people's courses or vice versa, I'm going to make it easier. <laughs> actually, <laughs> right? I, I'm going to be honest. I was actually thinking this is going to make my teaching yeah. so much easier because the discussions that I don't know how to get to, yeah. other people are inadvertently crowdsourcing it for, like I'm able to start. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned Hamlet, but even texts like that, that for some kids were just a, a, a like a lockbox. Mm -hmm. There's no access points. Yeah. When you start to talk about atypical psychology and sort of like sociology stuff and you say, just like Hamlet, and they're like, right. "Oh, yeah. like so, you yeah. know, ching, ching, so traditional English, exactly, you. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It helped, yeah. So I'm, I'm fully appreciative yeah. of, of some of the sort of like those linear paths of some of the traditional courses because it allowed me to track them and yeah. then draw it into yeah. my scattered brain squirrel of a course to yeah, yeah. quote myself. So I, I like that. I like. I really appreciated the traditional teachers. Yeah, but I mean, I think the same thing too. I also taught the same course, the APS course, um, as another way of getting topped up and loved it because it was one of the first places where I could learn about how to student-center the work that I was doing in the classroom because the that curriculum has the whole strand A, the inquiry strand that runs through it. Well, how do you implement that for content that you don't know? you put that back on kids and you get them to learn how to effectively research and you get them to learn how to be critical of different sources and critical of texts and you start to build a classroom community where you're learning that content together in ways that are relevant to what those kids are experiencing and doing. So again, like that for me was a really important experience because that course had that inquiry strand that ran through it. It was, how do I teach this while I students enter my classroom? great, how do I bring that back to my English room? All of our expectations are skills, right? There's not a single content knowledge expectation in the English curriculum. So that makes it really easy to student-center what we're doing. It doesn't matter what content they're using. It matters that it's accessible to them, and it matters that they're slowly looking at diverse and varied content that progressively gets more difficult over time so that they're building their skill set. Mm -hmm. Right, but who cares what text they read or what text they listen to or what they speak about or what, they're, what type of writing they're doing, right? We've centered essays as being an important thing for students to write, but nowhere does it say essay in our curriculum. It's just what we've decided to assign value to. So when we think about student centering it and thinking about that skill transfer, great, I have 
a room full of science kids, how can I explore scientific writing in an English classroom? Because that's what's going to be really, really relevant to them. That's what they all want to pursue, and that's what they're passionate about, and that's what they're doing. So we have kids right now reading nonfiction texts. They've had the opportunity to pick whatever nonfiction text they want. We have some kids reading like Neil deGrasse Tyson's books. We have other kids reading about medicine. It doesn't matter, but it matters to them. And that's huge, right? That idea of choice and that idea of looking at how we can put their needs, I'll say, at the center of what we're doing. And I only learned that because I had to teach in content areas that I didn't know anything about. So I had to teach curriculum really intentionally. And that intent was important, right? Like what did I do every single day? What's my intent with every single lesson? What do I want to elicit from every single student? And I think even from then to now, I've gotten a lot better at looking at it on a smaller scale. It's not what do I want, what's my intent in a class, it's what's my intent with this individual. Right? Where are they at in their learning? What interventions am I about to put in place for them independently? And what will the result look like? And then how can I assess that and restart that cycle? But again, like, people need to feel uncomfortable. And it was my discomfort in not knowing the civics curriculum and content and my discomfort in not knowing the APS information that got me to the point where I was able to reflect on my practice and able to say, I need to not be the expert in the room. And it's okay to not be the expert in the room. If that makes sense. Of course it does. <laughs> yeah. Of course it does. <laughs> right? Um. But we have this fear, too, I think, as teachers, that we need to be the experts in the room. So that's, take that out of, take that out of ego. What's the actual fear? It's your sense of control. So yeah, right? at the heart of the loss of control. Yeah. yeah. It's scary. And I get why it's scary. I can appreciate that. Yeah, I, 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 wrestle, I wrestle with that uh, in a way where I say... Like the loss of control is inevitable. I, I look at sort of like entropy as, as one of the key qualities of an active, engaged classroom. That you're going to have the breakdown and the movement away from whatever you expect to be the center of. There's, there's more than enough Pinterested classrooms on, on, you know, posted where you can kind of go, yep, that's how mine looked on the first day too, yet it's being sort of marketed as 100 days in. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I've, I take that as kind of a, well, that's interesting as a, as a sort of like a reminder, but I never believe necessarily that control. I have to move... I guess it's the locus of control that I have to move that because if it's if it's not me then what is it right and exploring that like if I'm not if I'm in this is I would say because I'm older <laughs> older yeah. in teaching but you know I am I'm older I can remember a whole shift in conversations around what does that mean what does it mean to sort of the teacher to be centered from the classroom and that conversation isn't that old no. so like like you know I, I dropped into this career 2004 2005 and if there's still a very and there still is depending on where you look the sense that the teacher is the teacher is gatekeeper mm -hmm. and i mean I, I don't even i don't really find i don't find the conversation i sorry i don't find the identification of that interesting anymore 
what I find more is the conversation around how do we support that shift? Mm -hmm. What are the supports that need to be in place to shift away from the teacher actually being the control center of the classroom? Yeah. It reminds me of the... Um, so back in the day when I was doing guidance, I was just coming out of guidance. This was just before student success was an actual, okay. uh, an actual position. So guidance was doing everything that student success would be doing now. Yet it wasn't because what they built on was a whole other area that student success could sort of dip into because you have a guidance department of four people. Mm -hmm. You can't do what a separate department can do. Mm -hmm. But I was sitting at a table where it was very clear that student success elements were no longer gonna be in the guidance portfolio. And one of the guidance counselors said, well, what are guidance counselors gonna do now? And it's a very telling, mm -hmm a telling kind of statement that I think some teachers are confronted with when they feel that change has to happen mm -hmm. and they feel like it's drifting away from them. You question, who, it's, it's an yeah. identity question. That can, oh, totally, It can be yeah. entirely frightening, except for the people that are like, woo, like they're on the ice flow floating <laughs> yeah. away. This is awesome. Yeah. They're happy to be yeah. the offshoot, right? But yeah, the individuals yeah. that are kind of um, anchored. Yeah, but I think, and you said kind of midway through that, you know, the discussion around how do we create that change? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'd be really interested in trying to collect some data about how comfortable do people feel redesigning a course in year one of their TPA cycle versus in year three or year four? Because the closer that we get to that idea of a series of expectations that we need to meet as teachers, I think the less willing to change we are and the less willing to give up control we are. Hmm. Right? So I'd be really interested in looking at, take a teacher, they're in year one of that four-year TPA cycle, so they're not being evaluated for another four years. How willing are they to take on a brand new course and redesign it from the ground up with these student-centered activities versus in year three or in your TPA year? Because a lot of the things that are on those tick boxes that you've got to hit when you're being evaluated, what does that look like in a student-centered classroom? And do you have an admin team who's willing to negotiate with what those tick boxes mean, right? Like, what does long-range planning look like? Well, really, you shouldn't be able to have long-range plans on the first or second or third day of a course. You don't know your kids yet, right? You might know the content or the skills that you're working to develop in, but you can't plan a course until you know your kids. And you can't plan the pace of your course until you start to see how their skills are developing. But how are we reflecting that in the way that we're evaluating our teachers? And how does that play into the fear that people are experiencing? And I think that goes back to like the beginning of this conversation. How do we as teachers censor who we are or what we want to do and what we want to accomplish because we think that there are systemic expectations on us? I'll roll with that. I'll admit, you know, when I arrived here, one of the things that made me want to talk to you, I was like, yo, she's got arm tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this yes, is entirely random, but it's in step with yeah. me. So I'll, I'll have to back it up. I had a conversation with, um, <laughs> but I could have put it into the music or just dropped that. But here's the thing. Um, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Doug Robertson. He markets, he sort of posts under the weird teacher. Okay. And he very much, like, if I would recommend anyone to sort of, he's a writer, he's an elementary school teacher, he's out in, um, I think, Portland. 
Sorry, Doug, if you're not important. He's in Oregon somewhere. Uh, but uh, he, he really does rock the know your kids, celebrate your kids, do as much as you can in the most authentic way with mm-hmm. your kids. Let them kind of bring out your authenticity as well. So me arriving here, I have no tribe. I have no one that I'm going to connect with. I don't have a circle. I don't have a PLN. I just kind of, I'm going to be, and, you know, maybe there's a few things said. I don't know. Like, I don't know what I'm walking into. Mm-hmm. So I'm scanning for the room, trying to think of who is, who do, who do I feel I could be aligned with? And then you spend a whole lot of time data gathering, right? Mm-hmm. So initially, that is something that made me think I could sort of at least be in the same space as this person being mm-hmm. you. But it's interesting when you say about, like, I don't know, I don't know where that measures in authenticity. It just stands out as, let's say, different than how other people are carrying themselves. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think that's part of the challenge when we, t- if we just talk about, you know, whatever the human is behind the teacher, being able to be that human in the classroom, it doesn't have to be something completely, um, let's say, explicit and ostentatious. It's the comfort that's supported from the inside. And you mentioned in the beginning safety and also that idea of safety leading to flourishing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've, it's not a conversation that's often well-framed in school. Like, I don't know. We, I don't think, you don't have big group conversations about this, I don't think. I think they're small space conversations. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and I don't know how to sort of transit them from small space to larger space. Like, right. there's not... There, there just isn't because I think part of where we end up tripping on is the yeah but about sometimes union conversations, yeah. admin pressures. Like there's, there's what we feel can be sort of barriers to sort of being that. I will tell you when I first started growing my beard, I didn't. I, I had a, I had a moment. I can't believe I had a moment. Like, you know, is this good? Is this this? Is will this dance well with my teacher side? Hmm. I think back on it now. It's entirely ridiculous. But there was an element of rebranding that was happening in there as well that I wondered what I've established so far, will it work with where I'm going to, where I don't even know where I'm going next, but I know I am going through, right? So part of it, um, I get the, I get that, I get that sort of wanting to be authentic. Sometimes I I said to someone else one time, I said, you know, we've spent a lot of time putting good stuff into school as teachers, Mm -hmm. whether you're buying stuff on your days off or you're bringing in novels from home. Yeah. Um, or not going to an event because you've got to spend time at school. Yeah. And I like to flip it sometimes and say, does school invest in the same way in us? Right. And then I'll go one step further. I don't know if it will until we start right. pushing through that, that here's my authentic, I'm not, here's my authentic me, here yeah. are my needs. Yeah. It messes with your mind to a degree because, oh, yeah. again, I don't know, I would... I can remember being a department head and we had conversations like that. What does that mean to sort of feel loved by your school? Yeah. Yeah. And it's messy. And it's weird. And then it gets messy Whoa. again. And then you kind of... Yeah. You have a lot of people kind of nodding their heads and going, I don't even know how to talk about this. Can we go back to talking about assessment and evaluation? Oh, well, not even just loved, though. Like, I think loved is the extreme that we should hope for. Yeah. But what about just welcomed? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Like, what about just that you feel you can be you yeah. and not be at risk? Yeah. Right. And we know, we know, I think, how I would venture to hope that no teacher would not see that as being important for their students. Yeah. Right. I would really hope that we all recognize the importance of a student walking into your room every day, feeling welcomed into that classroom, Mm -hmm. regardless of if they've shown up late, doesn't matter. You've welcomed them in. 
doesn't matter if you haven't seen them in weeks. You've welcomed them in and you've made them feel like this place welcomes them. But how much of ourselves do we allow people to see to then be welcomed? Especially if, especially if you know walking in, the version that you're presenting is welcomed. Right. And you're holding something just... Totally. I think about that, I think about that all the time for the students. If the version that I've... And this becomes a challenge back to the individual, yeah. whether or not they want to actually reveal their talk or sort of share or whatever. But yeah. I, there is moments like that where I know um, it, it has happened in some of my current colleagues. I'll yeah. switch something up or I'll behave a slightly different way that's away from what I've presented so far. And I don't, I don't, I don't on the front end take offense to it, but I do notice. And yeah. I think to myself, the conditions of our relationship were entirely based on what you assume you know about me. Right. And I've switched something up. And it's, it's subtle. It was subtle yeah. things for me and small things for me. And it wasn't something where I thought that there was any sort of shade being thrown my way of it. But it was enough that when I was making the decision to do it in the morning... I didn't consider someone was going to confront me with it mm-hmm. or notice it in a way that it was sort of articulated being strange or different. I forget. It was just something that I did recently. It was just something I did recently that I, I, well, I think it was when I shaved my, I reshaved my head. Mm. So I arrived here with the shaved head and then it grew <laughs> and then I shaved it over the Christmas holidays and came back <laughs> and, and basically yeah. told, and it's so simplistic, but yeah. I think, I think the, I think the driver underneath is yeah. the same thing, not necessarily being aware of yeah. the rules that we place on a welcoming environment. Do you think that we have a responsibility to be authentic? Like, to what extent do... And I think we're seeing this in society right now, right? We're seeing people in positions of power, and that could be media-based power, that could be political power, it doesn't matter. We're seeing people in positions of power being asked to fully expose themselves in whatever sense, because we know the importance of visibility, Yeah. right? So, and this is something that I struggle with because like, so I'm gay. Do I have a responsibility to be open about that? And I, I mean, I think at the beginning of my career, no, because mm. I was very afraid of that. And I was very afraid of the repercussions of that. But I think now, in the environment that we're in, and in trying to build community and like humanity-based schools, yeah, I think to some extent we do have some responsibility in a safe environment, like knowing that you're going to be safe and with all those kind of precursors in place. But then you arrive in a space. And yeah. I arrived in a space with a that shaved head. That you don't head. know. Yeah. Well, or that I do know. Yeah. I arrived in a space with a shaved head after having grown my yeah. hair out. And in that moment, in that moment, I'm, I'm realizing that my relationship here is based on the assumption that they had no context for why I shaved my head in the first place. I'm cheap. Right. <laughs> That's what it was. It was. It's the thing I learned in university. Makes that sense. yeah, but I had clippers like for fifteen years. Yeah. Like you can't keep them in good order. But part of the motivation aside, the assumption of the assumption of something being, um, I don't want to say wrong, but it felt like somehow being accused of something that I was aware of again, that the rules of connectivity that I had soon were just like at a human level were contingent 
on a, on a rule book. So it, mm -hmm. is it our responsibility? I think, I think what, whether it's our responsibility to be authentic, I would say that's the content. What I would say is more important for me is helping kids, students, colleagues, what's the skill of sort of understanding that different people are gonna have different rules for how you're welcomed. And then that creates the opportunity for choice. Mm -hmm. I came into a mm -hmm. space where um, I wouldn't have thought that I want, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that I needed to make a choice between any elements of me, my shaved head or my unshaved head. Mm -hmm. I could just arrive and be. Mm -hmm. The re response that I had made me feel like I had to decide between the shaved head and this new relationship or grow it back out mm -hmm. and go back to the old relationship. Hmm. I have to be honest, I kind of said, screw it, I gotta do what I want. Mm -hmm. I landed on, I have, I have whatever resiliency engine for me to go there. Yeah. Working that through with students, that's a pretty complex, oh, yeah. that's a pretty complex kind of, uh, I think, um, framework to oh, work yeah. through. So do I feel responsible to be as authentic as possible? Yes, I would answer that on that because I know that's good for me. Mm -hmm. Like I know that's mm -hmm. so good for me and I'm old, but it's so <laughs> good for me to come to that realization to sort of be centered in, in not only, not in who I believe myself to be, but who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not ready to say I'm old yet, but I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and I guess where I'm at right now, and so like in my current, I guess, state of innovation, it's part of me is the personal piece where it's how do I present myself as fully and as authentically as I can in my school? And I don't think I in any way hide anything. But I mean, do I have conversations openly with students the same way as perhaps a straight teacher would? Probably not. But then, I mean, there's the pedagogical innovation that I'm working on. Yeah. And those two things are totally distinct. Yes. And yet, both, I think, play really important roles in how we interact with and build that resiliency in students and, and build student capacity in different places. And so I wonder, for me, like, growing up, I didn't have those visible... I guess, role models. I had role models in school, like we already mm -hmm. talked about, but were there any visible role models that connected to my identity? No, and I wonder if it took me as long to get to the point where now I feel comfortable and I feel confident, and did it take me that long to get there because there was no visibility? And mm -hmm. so I think that's where the sense of responsibility starts to kick in, right? Like, Yes. I've often, I, I think about, I'm not deep enough in equity theory yeah. to, to sort of shape this well enough. But part of where I, one of the, I think one of the shelves, some of the discussion about whether or not you can sort of openly, like where your pedagogy and your, and your personal and your personality kind of come mm -hmm. together. I don't think, I, I don't say it's as simple as me just being able to mention a story about my wife in the classroom, which satisfies the rules of mm -hmm. being welcomed mm -hmm. in the same way that you would be about talking about your mm -hmm. significant other, yeah. whatever level that might be. It's the fact it's it's the fact that there has to be a discussion about it in the first place, which makes it inequitable. Absolutely. So I sort of and I think again, the the whether it's for our car colleagues or for the kids in our classroom, um, I find that 
if I've ever found, the only time I've ever found myself in one of those conversations, it's because, and it hasn't happened too often, but if I've ever found myself in a conversation where a student was sort of talking about the safety of a classroom, and them wanting, wanting, I find I always start with what's the more they want from the space. And then eventually I get to what's kind of been taking away from them. I try, because I, I find for me that's always been the, it, I find like I can, I can sort of get more traction in the conversation by mm -hmm. what is your, what is your ideal? Mm -hmm. And there has been on one occasion where the student said, it's, it's what everyone else has. Mm. And then you as a teacher are like, oh, yep. I gotta unpack that now. Like, cause yeah. then you're like, oh, yeah. what is it that everyone else has that this person, because yeah. you're at that point, you're just like, everyone kind of has access to the same, how is it taught? Mm -hmm. It's not the content, it's the skill, back to the skill thing. Yeah. We're way off my mind now. No, we're right there. Are we there? We're at culturally responsive we, school climate. We are, <laughs> I, I like that, yeah. I like that. We jumped over other things. So here's Let's what. Let's go I, back. Yeah. Here, well, I don't. I don't know. I gotta. No? I gotta pick okay. up my kids. I wanna. Maybe we do a, a, a part second. Two. A part two. Um, mm -hmm. What do you? I'm on my page right now. It doesn't translate well to podcast. I'm actually. So I love EQAO. <laughs> that's really. It's almost brutal that we're shifting out of where no, we just were because no. that's like that's beyond rich but conversation, a line right? Here, Is there? Right? Yeah. Okay, you lead it then. Okay, so the, the well, you wrote it as I Heart. I Heart, yeah, there we go. Um, I, so you and I, I think, are on the same page in that there's value in, in standardized testing. Yes. I think. Yes. I think there's value in it from a data standpoint in being able to kind of establish some, some norms and being able to establish kind of some general expectations of what a graduate looks like, of different skill sets, but I think that, and this is the through line, I think that those tests need to be designed in a way that are accessible and equitable for all of our students. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think one of the, this year, one of the struggles and the frustrations I've had is that because this is the first time that I've led the literacy test implementation, so this is my first time in the role of literacy teacher, I've always just supported on the literacy committee. For me, the frustration has come into f seeing just how unfairly the implementation and administration of the test actually runs. Um, and the fact that I don't actually think, with the literacy test specifically, that we're testing literacy. I think that we're testing whether or not kids have specific content knowledge and whether they have kind of contextual Canadian understandings, um, not whether or not they're literate. And then I think what I've been exposed to is some of the bureaucracy that exists that I have a hard time with because if we know that X is good for kids, does it matter how we get there? Does it matter if a student writes the test in French or English, mm -hmm. right? So this test exists in both French and English. We happen to be part of an English program and so therefore the French version is unavailable in spite of perhaps a student being completely fluent in French but is new to our country. Other kids in our province are passing this standardized test in French and that student's not allowed to? That's questionable to me. So 
I think where I'm struggling is we can look at all the best practices that we've tried to put into place to support our students and that doesn't translate over into how we then implement these standardized tests. So there needs to be some, some continuity between how we're delivering these expectations and these skills that we're building and then how we're going to test them and, I mean, for lack of a better word, judge these kids. And it's so high stakes that that is how they feel, right? They feel judged. Yeah. I'll never forget the, um, at some point, at some point I think, I don't know if I was supporting, I don't think I was actually teaching it. So like the after school literacy course, mm, yeah. I don't think they would have given that to me. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a great idea. It was maybe my second or third year, but I remember, I might have just been supporting, but I remember there was an activity and it was a, um, the newspaper article <laughs> analysis, right? And the title on the newspaper article analysis was, uh, Red Riding Hood, Red Riding Hood Thief, and then there was some other parts of the title, but it was did something, stole several cars or something like that. <laughs> and part of the analysis was hung on understanding who Red Robin, uh, Red Riding Hood is. Yeah. And um, I had two students of uh, Persian origin. I had uh, one student who, Italian in background and still sort of working through English. I believe they were, they were already in, like they had sort of transitioned into grade nine. So they were kind of on the on-ramp to be able to take, like uh, they were out of the um, ESL frame into a grade nine course at the time. So the expectation is that they're gonna be writing. And this was the sample, this is like the Lit Blitz book. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time, I'm like, okay, well we gotta, I guess we have to talk about Red Riding Hood and what that story is in order to access the yeah. interpretation of the, the newspaper title. Mm -hmm. And that foundationally kind of shook my, my um, kind of how I lensed the literacy test. And one of the things that in, in being able to account for individual skill sets, how do we get it out from behind that drive to have it sort of captured with content mm -hmm. because it was in that case the content that was completely they could have yeah. the comment they got the content when I explained the story they're like oh okay oh, someone that kind of like well yeah that kind of goes from room to room and sort of like spends time and, and like okay that makes sense it doesn't make sense as a who, what Robert does that the kids are saying right yeah but, yeah well it's interesting when you look at kind of our scores and our data and it suggests that the area or the skill that our kids are struggling most with is making connections. Mm. Well, how much of that is because there's nothing for them to connect to? Yeah. Right? And I mean, I think the, one of the examples that I showed, I think it was earlier this year at a staff meeting, was a multiple choice question for a graphic text. Um, and in order to answer the question, you had to be able to read the graph and know that the four or five examples on it were all examples of renewable resources. Mm -hmm. So even if you know the definition of renewable resource, if you haven't learned about, and they were, I can't remember what they were, but they weren't like well-known terms. Like these were things that you had to have taken geography to know this, or you had to like be well-versed in reading about um, I guess renewable resources and energy and all that mm -hmm. in order to know the terminology. So was it a question where our kids didn't know how to read the graph or was it a question where they were choosing between two answers 
just taking a guess because they didn't know what the terms meant. Yeah. Right? And then when you look at that, I mean, so that was geography content that was being used. And I can appreciate that the test is intended to test content up until the end of grade nine. But that's also a course that, to use the ESL um, like structure as an example, that a lot of our kids who were writing for the first time would have skipped at this point. They wouldn't have taken the grade nine geography yet, regardless of where they are in moving into mainstream programming. So even in the design, are we truly testing the skill set or are we testing their knowledge of a bunch of content that we've deemed important? Let alone the learning that would happen incidentally just from having lived in an English-speaking province, being a part of a school for, at that point, let's say maybe 10 years, maybe 11 years already. Mm -hmm. So your your intermittent contact with some of these stories would have given you some queuing system to decode it. Even if you had never, I would would say there's there's very few students, let's say, that have done school all the way, let's say Ontario, all the way from SK to Mm. grade nine, that that wouldn't be able to sort of maybe even heard of mm-hmm. like a nursery rhyme of some sort maybe we've completely let go of red riding hood yeah. but there would be another one that that's what that's based on yeah the life that parallels the learning yeah yep. and um i think when you and i started talking about the support of standardized testing i think that's where i come at is from the hospitality industry yeah. and, and getting your chef's qualifications i mean any of the certification or qualifications the cfqs for electrician or plumber or these yeah. other uh, certifiable trades it's based on a very solid core of, of skills, knowledge. You, you would have already demonstrated the skills. Mm. So um, then writing the actual certification exam, it's entirely based on foundational skills. Mm-hmm. And in that, in, and not life, mm-hmm. there's no life there. It's entirely, unless you just measure the amount of time that you've lived in order to learn those skills. Right. So it's compartmentalized right. in a way that... I find at least what I've, where I think of the EQAO so far, OSSLT in particular, mm-hmm. not so much, I haven't had as much exposure to the math, but the actual skills that I've seen that are necessary to be demonstrated, though we're saying it's an aggregate all the way up to grade nine, what I think it doesn't take into account is the students that are arriving just prior to that and then having similar expectations to complete. Mm-hmm. There, there is a... Mm-hmm. So there's, there isn't a way that they could rationally or reasonably demonstrate the skills that the yeah. test is looking for, yeah. even if you completely defang the whole content layer yeah. to it, yeah. just to have time living those skills for a while. Well, and I would assume, and I mean, I might be wrong, but so when you're thinking about the specific testing that goes into um, like the experiences that you've had, mm-hmm. I would assume that that testing is authentic to the needs of that area whatever it may be specific right so this isn't and we talk all the time about like using authentic resources in our classrooms and we talk all the time about making assessments authentic but what aspect of what they're testing here is authentic to what kids are reading and writing on a day-to-day basis yeah so like what's their exposure to these texts exactly and when i think back to like a, a question and i don't know if it's still a part of the actual cook trade paper but it would be when, you know, breaking down, breaking down a carcass or like an animal carcass, what percentage of waste, what range of percentage of waste is expected for hmm. beef? And there's a, standard, there's a standard number there. It doesn't say what's your percentage of waste 
for beef that's French. Hmm. Yeah. Which would be entirely the content that's yeah. unnecessary and distracting. And what's the skill you have to demonstrate is the mathematical calculation and the extraction right. of the actual uh, from the word problem. Right. So that's that's where I yeah, it didn't matter if it was a French cow or a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there, there are some elements of science there depending on, you know, let's say the fattiness of the cow. But in general, it wouldn't matter if it was a French yeah. cow per se. No. But I think, I mean, so I mean, what do we do, right? Like, I think mm. we need to reevaluate what we're delivering to students with respect to standardized testing. And I think in that evaluation, like, have different industries propose the skill set. That would be too, interesting, right? actually. Like, what skill set does a student need, regardless of pathway? What does that look like? And how has that informed the design of these tests? Because if we're testing a bunch of skills that, I mean, I know that it, it breaks down into skills that are transferable, right? So it breaks down into being able to read explicit details, implicit details, make connections, etc. And that's going to be transferable to anything, but then how are we representing that on the test? And if the information that we're using in the representation could be informed by our various pathways and what those pathways suggest, I think we might start to see some difference. So is is the right? is the is the OSSLT an English task? No. English department or English curriculum task? No. See, this is where I'm, my brain is kind of going there. No. Would you would you like to believe? It's like a, I'm mm -hmm. going total passive voice. Oh, yeah. Would you like to believe that the tasks in the test exist in classrooms naturally somewhere in the province? As in there's schools that are saying, okay, we know that there's going to be that, the graphic text question, that those styles are being done actively in classrooms somewhere? Um, yes, I do. Now, and this is, I think, my what I've taken from this year and what I want to look towards doing moving forwards is we've spent lots of time talking about how literacy has to be a whole school endeavor. Yeah. Right. And I think people buy into that, but in the same way as English teachers and their training doesn't prepare them to teach the English curriculum, mm -hmm. neither does any teacher training. Yeah, yeah, right? we, we haven't trained science teachers or geography teachers or history teachers to teach kids how to access a graphic text. So they use... In a way that dovetails with the OSSLT? Right, well... Or you just mean in, in, in general, general, okay. In general, because I think like if kids have that skill set and if they're conscious of the skill set, then the type of text that ends up on the OSSLT is still gonna be something that's accessible to them, assuming what we were saying before with the content. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's a different part of the conversation, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so for me, I think some of the next steps is how can we look at building teacher capacity in delivering literacy education, regardless of subject area. Right. So what tools can different departments use so that it still suits the content that they're delivering, but in a way that demonstrates the transfer between what kids are learning explicitly in English classes, and it starts to show kids that these skills don't only exist in the English curriculum. Right. And I think in our English programming here, that's our goal. That's been the foundation of change that we're trying to implement. It's looking at these four strands and this set of skills as being more than just what you use in an English classroom when right. you read a book, right? When you're sitting in science and you have a textbook or in phys ed and you're reading a playbook, 
doesn't matter what you're reading, you're reading Twitter, it doesn't make a difference. You're still accessing the same set of skills and the same strategies. So let's make it visible that that's happening. And then let's build professional capacity in teachers to be able to have those conversations with students when they're not understanding. Because if a student doesn't have that skill set, they're not getting their homework. It's true. Right? And then that breakdown takes place. Well, again, what interventions are we putting into place? Maybe it's just a matter of improving literacy skill sets. And that's what's going to improve that student's test scores. Right? Or whatever assessment it might be, whatever subject area it might be. So I think one of the things, and I do think that this is happening, like I think that we've seen examples of it, but one of the things that I want to work towards is how can we provide very concrete resources so that teachers know how to teach those skills yeah. in their content area. Because to expect them to without the PD is unfair. It is true. Mm -hmm. Or you see the same struggles that we have now. Look, we're just not... Mm -hmm. connecting dots yeah yeah well, that was a good through line I know that was a good through line yeah okay I'm gonna hit, yeah. hit you with one more yeah I gotta bust a move <laughs> yeah I can see my kid standing on the corner where's daddy <laughs> no just joking um okay so let's just let's let's land lightly on the next okay um Okay, I'll go big. Teaching forever or just for now? Or somewhere in between? Education forever. Uh, educate. There's a t-shirt. <laughs> Education forever. I, I don't know if it will be teaching okay. per se. I mean, it might be teaching and not teaching kids. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, education forever. I think pedagogy really excites me. I think I really enjoy thinking about the practices that we use in our classrooms and so whatever I end up doing whether it's continuing to teach or some sort of consulting or whatever it might be I think it'll have to do with that so how about this then if you were to if you're to drop into some sort of edu side hustle right now hmm I say that because it's trendy. Yeah, it's I know, very right? trendy to have some sort of edu side hustle, whether it's uh, a book. I yeah. It's uh. I like assessment. Yeah. I don't want to do so. Yeah, I I have a few things I want to try. You don't have to year. launch it here. You don't have to launch Perfect. it here, but yeah. Part two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a few things I want to try, and so there's some some assessment based stuff that I'm particularly interested in, and some thinking I've been doing around. Um, like standards-based grading or being grade-less and being skills-focused. Mm -hmm. um, the, what I think, use a strong word, the uselessness of KTCA and how it just convolutes what we do in our classrooms. Um, so I think in the next, I guess, few years, that's kind of the direction that I'm thinking about and what my next steps are pedagogically. The assessment piece. I will say, Flana, I part. yeah, I know a few people that are. I don't know. I don't know how much progress our school board has made mm -hmm. on gradeless assessment. There are other jurisdictions that have made it further, but it is something that's entirely on my radar to sort of yeah. to get there. So I'm more than happy to come and play yeah. in that zone with you at some point because it's yeah. 
there, there's something to it. Yeah, I don't know if it's full grade. Like, I know myself, I'm very much motivated by understanding my progress. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a reconsideration of what our assessment looks like and how, I mean, right now, a mark although it shouldn't be, but for all intents and purposes, kids understand their marks as an average of their achievement. But does that actually reflect their achievement of expectations? Yeah. I don't think so. And I think that there's some ways that we could tweak and redesign the way that we're communicating with students. And again, gradeless is, I think, one way of doing it. I think maybe a nice, happy medium between being gradeless and being more student-centered and having students the onus be on students to present learning and have them kind of building capacity and being more metacognitive um, is something that I want to explore. And finding a way to not have to use KTCA is something that I want to explore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's uh, I think where my head's at right now. Um, and there's a few things that I think I'm gonna want to try in the next year or so. So we'll see. So a lot of side hustles in there somewhere. Hopefully, <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> That's cool. I look yeah. forward. I look forward to seeing you know a session pop up on um, going gradeless. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't seen it pop up in our. Yeah. I haven't heard of anyone rocking it yet. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Good talk. Yeah. You good? Oh yeah. You have kids to figure out. There's stuff. There's stuff for us to <laughs> yeah. come back to. There's definitely stuff for us to come back to. Um, any last words? Don't, no. does, that shouldn't sound so ominous, but I you know. know yeah. yeah, I know. No, no. Any words for now? No, that was, I'm good. So how about this? If uh, anyone wants to reach out, connect with you, chat more, mm-hmm. where would you like to be found? Um, so I'm on Twitter. You have it written down. Is that the one? I'm... It is, yeah. So at Ms. M-S underscore Vitelli, V-I-T-E-L-L-I. Um, that would probably be best. And then... In contact from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like that's, you that's only need, you only need the that. one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have other people like they lay it all down. I'm like, geez, that's quite a just, salad of choice. I but, can't uh, check that much. Just yeah, totally, one. totally, totally. Yeah, so we'll filter yeah. it back through Twitter. I'll put it in the uh, cool. in the podcast notes as well. well. Thanks for talking. Anytime, my pleasure. Fantastic. Have yeah. a good night. You too. <laughs>